0: go through what's called basic training, right? And what's the purpose of basic training? It's what? To indoctrinate, <laughs> as Don says with a, a smile on her, grin on his face, okay? There's an indoctrination process. There's an understanding of uh, the chain of command. There's an understanding that whatever it is these people tell you, that's what you've got to do. <laughs> it's kind of like the young man who said, I'm tired of living in my parents' household and I'm just uh, I'm sick of my mom, and my dad telling me what to do all the time. And you know, so the person he was counseling with said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to join the army because <laughs> nobody ever told anybody what to do in the army. Right. Um, you understand that there's an understanding that from the very minutest things to how uh, how you make your bed or how you shine your shoes or how you tie your laces, they're telling you exactly what it is that they want you to do and how they want you to do it. And the purpose is, is that they're trying to get you to a point where it is that you look like what it is that they want you to look like. And through that process, again, there's pain, there's learning, there's um, people that are are interested in you doing what's right. And they're very, very forceful with what they say. But then there's also times that uh, I'm told, especially with uh, uh, things like the marine training. Whenever it is that they take them out to the rifle range, you don't have necessarily somebody yelling at you 24-7 because they want you to be able to handle that rifle uh, exactly right. And so it's a little bit more uh, not laid back, but just a little bit less um, in your face, I guess, is a good way to say it. But through the calisthenic process, through the uh, challenges and difficulties and opportunities that they give you, again, what they're trying to do is get you not thinking as an individual anymore, but thinking the way it is that the army wants you to think, or the navy or the uh, air force or whoever it is that uh, that you're joined up with. And so it is that after it's all over, you're going to find that the disciples or the recruits or the... Uh, members who just went through basic training are going to look exactly like the drill sergeant wanted them to look. And the drill sergeant is, uh, of course, wanting them to look like a member of that branch of the service. When we get to the New Testament and we look at the way that Jesus trained his disciples, it's not really a whole lot like the military, but what the indoctrination process, as Don brought out a little while ago, that's the purpose. Jesus took 12 ordinary men and he trained them to be just like their master. In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher. He's not above his master. What's the point of that saying? The saying is, is that the disciple is going to become like the teacher because as the disciple follows the teacher, everything that the teacher gives him and everything he says to him is going to be imprinted upon that disciple depending on to the degree of that which he's listened and so as he took these 12 ordinary men and trained them to be just like their master, so also the disciples took that message of Jesus as it was when Jesus was resurrected and he went back to heaven. The Holy Spirit came and he guided them into all truth. He helped them to understand everything that Jesus taught them. So as they began to commit their, uh, their uh, master's teaching to others, it became something that the disciples became like their master. As you look at the list or uh, uh, the places where we see things like that, take a look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 in your Bible. This is the verse we just mentioned uh, from the book of Matthew chapter 10. But note also verse 40 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. All right. There's an understanding that Jesus wants us to be just as he was or just as he is. Rather, he wanted his disciples as he trained them and as he talked to them to be exactly like he uh, is. And in uh, their understanding and their perfection. All right. Take a look at uh, John 13, verse 15. John 13, verse 15. As he took off his outer garment and uh, put on that towel and began to go around and wash his disciples' feet, this last living illustration, <coughs> other than the cross, that he was giving them, note what he said there in John uh, 13 and verse 15. He said, for I have given you as an example that you should do as I have done to you. What's the point that Jesus is trying to get to these apostles here at this Last Supper? See, they're getting in an argument about who's the greatest. They're getting in an argument about who's uh, the favorite. Who's the one that Jesus have, uh, prefers above all the others? And what did Jesus do? He takes his towel and he goes around and he begins to wash feet. And He says, I want you to be just like I am. I want you to do just like I have done to you. And as these men would go, uh, go about, you would find them trying to emulate Christ and to be uh, feet washers, so to speak. Take a look at first Peter chapter two and verse uh, twenty 1 Peter two, verse twenty one. We like the second half of this verse that Christ left us an example that we should walk in his steps. And that's absolutely true. There's the disciples that are following faithfully. We Again, use our military uh, metaphor. You've got the, the drill sergeant uh, counting and saying left, 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 right, left. And we understand a disciple or a uh, follower that's out of step with that. We should walk in his steps. We should do the way he did. But note the first part of this verse here in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. The Christian life brings suffering. The same path that we trod behind Jesus Christ, as we follow him, Luke nine thirty one. you want to follow after me, you want to become my disciple, you follow after me, you take up your cross daily, and you follow. As we follow Christ with our own cross, as we follow him to be crucified, brothers and sisters, there's suffering that happens because we're faithfully following him. That's part of discipleship. And you're going to find that a number number of the uh, disciples, uh, especially the apostles, didn't die natural deaths. In fact, I think church history tells us that John the apostle was the only one that died of old age. The rest of them were martyred in some way or killed along the way. But as Jesus chose these men, what you're going to find is, brothers and sisters, Jesus chose these men not because of who they were, but because of what the potential was that they had to become. Let me say that again. Jesus chose them not because of who they were, but because of their potential and what they had the potential to become. Isn't that the way God does it? What about Moses? When would have been, if we were talking about uh, the high point for a, uh, a leader to come out of God's people, when would you have chosen Moses in his life to lead God's people out of Egypt? I would say when he was about 40 years old and when it was that he had uh, looked and saw the oppression of his people and he saw that there was an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and Moses looked this way and that way and he went over and he killed that Egyptian and then buried him in the sand. That seems like to me, from an earthly perspective, the mark of a leader, a revolutionary to want to lead this revolt against the Egyptian government and lead his people out of Egypt. It's not the way God did it. God waited till Moses had fled off into the wilderness of Midian and stayed there another 40 years, and then at the age of 80, brought Moses back inside and through God's power. Moses had to learn something for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian before it was that he was qualified to lead God's people. <laughs> you look at the ragtag group of misfits that Jesus had picked to be his disciples. You see Peter who was prone to sticking his foot in his mouth a lot. You see you know a zealot there's a religious uh, um, uh extremist. You know the zealots had the uh, particular group of their number that were the assassins, the sicarii. And these sicarii were the dagger men and here's a person who wants to overthrow the government at all costs. Well, wait a minute. You know is that really the type of type of person that we would have picked to be Jesus? chosen spokesman to the world. Jesus chose people, these people, not because of who they were, but because of the potential of what they had uh, to become. And what results? What results did they get? Take a look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Acts 17 and verse 6. Here's these uh, apostles in uh, Thessalonica, particular Paul and uh, and others. And when you get to verse six, they did not find them. That is, they're looking for uh, those who are preaching the gospel. They didn't find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, "These who have turned the world upside down have come here too." Here's a indictment that these people have made against the followers of Jesus, that uh, those who have been trained like he was and those who have been following in his footsteps. And now they're looking at him and they say, these guys have turned the world upside down. Brothers and sisters, what difference have we made in our world? What difference have we made in turning the world upside down in our day? Has it made an impact on us as followers, as those who uh, who have sat at the feet of Jesus and learned of him? They turned the world upside down. Colossians 1.23 says the gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. They faithfully accomplished the mission for which Jesus sent them. They faithfully followed in his steps and they accomplished the great commission, Colossians 1.23 tells us. When we take a look at the apostles and get to know who these men were and see how Jesus trained them to become what he wanted them to be, brother and sister, we can't help but think about how our own individual personalities can be used for, uh, uh, for good. Before the cross... As Jesus went about doing good here on this earth before the cross, it's almost like the apostles were standing in His shadow. Occasionally, you would have the Pharisees or you would have the rulers of the Jews come to one of His disciples and begin to ask the questions of of them about their teacher. Um, You know, uh, going to Peter and saying, "Does your disciple pay taxes or not?" Peter says, "Oh yeah, he does," and then immediately runs to Jesus to come, almost as if to say, "Is that is that really true?" Um, and before the cross, the focus is on Jesus. After the cross, what you're going to find is here's these men that are still faithfully trying to stand in the shadow of the cross. They're still faithfully trying to stand in the shadow of Jesus. They're pointing back to him like we talked about last week. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to faithfully uphold everything that he said. Flip back in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter, uh, chapter 4. Acts chapter four. You got Peter and John who healed the man who was a uh, uh, lame beside the uh, the gate, beautiful there in the temple. Chapter four. Now Peter and John have to stand before the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, and they're looking at this and they're going, "These men are preaching the resurrection." And they're standing in trial, uh, uh, kind of a again a mock kangaroo court before these men. As Peter begins to speak to them about Jesus, look what he says there in verse 10 and 11. Let it be known to you, Peter says, by all that all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God had raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Note this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized they had been with Jesus. It's almost as if an afterthought that these men are looking at Peter and John and saying, Now I know where you're from. Now I remember you were the ones that were following him around the entire, uh, the entire three and a half years that he was here on this earth. It's almost like they couldn't place it, or they were just standing there in the shadow of Jesus but as these men are still trying to faithfully stand in the shadow of Jesus, now it is that these people are looking at them and saying, I see, you're one of those that was with them. They realize that they had been with Jesus. It makes a difference, brothers and sisters, when we stand and we uh, stay with Jesus, when we sit at the feet of Jesus, when we study under Jesus, when we change our mind and our hearts to look like Jesus, and when we change our actions, people are going to wake up and they're going to take notes. More on that in the sermon this morning. All right. If you're going to look at the four lists of the apostles, about where they're listed, you're going to find Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. You're going to find Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. You're going to find Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. Among these lists, you're going to find these men who are listed. You have Peter and Andrew, of course. You've got James and John, of course, who are uh, Jesus' inner circle. Who are the ones that were uh, Jesus' close friends? Peter, James, and John. That's exactly right. All right. Note that they're fishermen. You've got Bartholomew, often called also Nathaniel in some lists. You've got Thomas called the Didymus, which is a twin. You have James the Less. You have Simon. You have Thaddeus. Uh, Labaius is some, uh, some translation, or Judas. Uh, and they'll add the, uh, the caveat, not Iscariot, right? Um, you have Matthew and Levi uh, and Judas Iscariot, or Judas of Scariot was, uh, was his hometown. And that's the 12. You've got four fishermen, possibly three more, uh, depending on how you look at John 21, verse 2. So you have maybe seven of these that are, uh, that are fishermen. You have one zealot and one who is a tax collector. Who was that? It was Matthew, right? Um, how were the tax collectors viewed? In the first century, terrible. Why is that? They were filling their own pockets with money they could uh, they could swindle from people, uh, charging extra taxes and, and making um, uh, making unreasonable and unlawful demands on people just so that they could put a little bit more in their pocket. Right? They were dishonest. And Jesus chose Matthew to be his tax collector. Again, he chose these men not because of who they were, but because of what they could become. You look at the word disciple. The the Greek word that we get our word disciple from is mathetes. It is used about, um, let's see, 269 times in the New Testament. It's a simple word that means a follower or a learner or an understudy. I don't know why, but I always think about those Kung Fu movies where it is that you have a, a teacher with a long flowing white beard, right? And you have a, one who wants to learn by that person. And what they'll do is they'll come and the first thing they'll do is they'll present their sword. They'll kneel before their teacher and look and say, I'm yours, mold me and shape me. I want to become like you. I want to have the wisdom and the knowledge that you have. And so you have the word understudy or disciple or a learner or a follower. The word specifically for apostle is uh, transliterated. That is, we get it directly over in the English from the Greek. It sounds like the word apostle, apostolos. It is used some 80 times in the New Testament, and it is sent on, uh, to, simply to mean means, uh, to set forth on a mission. They are chosen messengers. Um, when you would have a, uh, a military ruler that would send forth his fleet to go to a foreign land, he would have one that would stand before the, uh, the kings or those who are in authority, and he would say, here's the terms of your surrender. Here's the terms of peace with these people. You have to subjugate yourself under our, our rule. Um, here's exactly what I have the authority to say. And he would deliver that message faithfully, and then the king would say, no, we're going to have war, or um, yes, we agree to your terms. That's the word for apostle, to send forth with an authority uh, for a specific purpose. Um, when you have uh, um, in the president's office, right, the, the press secretary, press secretary stands there and communicates or should communicate clearly the policies of that administration. So whatever the president has said as far as his uh, his policy there in the uh, executive branch, you now have the press secretary that communicates that message. That press secretary doesn't have the authority to speak on their own. They just have the authority to speak whatever the message is that they've received from commander-in-chief. Again, ideally, that's the way it should work. When you've got somebody that speaks on behalf of somebody else, if they go beyond that message, they're then speaking presumptuously. And again, you can get a whole lot of people in trouble. You can get yourself in a whole lot of trouble if it is that you don't speak that message faithfully. But here's the apostles. And Jesus had sent them forth with a message for a specific purpose. And that's, uh, that's the idea. Here's the truth. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. All right? All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Jesus sent the twelve so it was that on the day of Pentecost, they could clearly communicate everything that what that meant about Jesus being attested by miracles and wonders and signs so that these men would come to the conclusion to say, I'm guilty of that. I killed Jesus. I cried out, crucify him. Now, men and brethren, what shall we do? And as the church began, it began with the full authority of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit, who came from Christ, who was sent from Christ, filled these men and gave them the message so that they could clearly communicate what it was that God wanted these people to do now that Christ had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And so as these men communicated the message of Jesus, They let these people know this is what you ought to do. Ever hear somebody say, you know what, I just want to be a red-letter Christian? I just want to follow the words of Jesus, and I don't want to follow anything else that's not a red letter of Jesus. I appreciate the attitude of wanting to just follow Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, if we understand anything about the New Testament, especially about the book of John, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 33, John 16, 13, about how Jesus said that these apostles who were sent in his name with a specific mission, a specific purpose, if we understand that, that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to speak whatever it was that Christ had authorized, then we can't just be red-letter Christians. We've got to be New Testament Christians. Every word of God, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. As Peter would write to the Christians and talk about uh, the writings of Paul in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, he would say, Paul uh, write writes some things that are hard to understand. He said which unstable men twist to their own destruction. They twist the scriptures. What's he saying? He's saying the words of Paul are authoritative. Why are they authoritative? Not because Paul is speaking on his own authority, but why? Because he's speaking the words of Jesus. He's following the commander-in-chief. He has been trained by him. He's speaking with his authority, and he's speaking faithfully whatever it is that he speaks. Make sense? Y'all with me? How we doing? All right. Good to you. Then Jesus chose. Sometimes it's helpful to look at who he didn't choose as opposed to who he did choose. Who did he not choose? He didn't choose the scribes and Pharisees. Take a look at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. You see, verses 1 and 2, here's the reason why Jesus says what he says down in verses 8 and 9. The scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the, the, uh, the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Remember what I said? It's almost like they're hiding in the shadow of Jesus. Right? The only reason why they're being noticed by the scribes and Pharisees is why. Do what? what? Because they didn't wash their hands. They're looking for an occasion to accuse Jesus of something. So who do they look to? They look to his followers. They look to his disciples. And it's not the fact that they're noticing their disciples and saying, oh, look, there's Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and all those. It's the fact that, oh, you see that guy over there? He didn't wash his hand before he put, uh, put his hand to his mouth. You know, our tradition says that there's unclean spirits that dwell on your hands. And if you don't uh, wash your hands, then you can get sick from eating the food because you're you're ingesting those unclean spirits. Why don't they wash their hands before they eat, Jesus? And as Jesus answers what he says, he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? God commanded, saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his mother, uh, father, what profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Um, uh, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect because of your tradition. So here's the, there, here's the condemnation. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. It seems like in this context, and you look at the other gospel account that references this, it's particularly taking care of mom and dad in their old age. Mom and dad, I would take care of you. I would uh, be able to provide just a little extra for you, you know, but whatever I was going to give you, I'm going to take that and I'm going to devote that as a gift to God. I'm going to uh, to devote this over here. You see, I'm I'm trying to be a spiritual person, but you know, have fun of your poverty. Jesus says you're neglecting the commandment of God because of your tradition. This is tradition for me to give this money over here, but I'm not going to And note what he says, verse seven, hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Why did Jesus not choose the scribes and Pharisees? They were the religious elite of the day. They were the ones that the little uh, the little uh, common folk would have looked at and said, if there's somebody that's going to get into heaven, one of them's going to be a, uh, a Pharisee, the other one's going to be a Sadducee. These people are obviously very very spiritual. Why did he not choose Pharisees and Sadducees to become his apostles? They didn't have a heart of love. They weren't learners. They were hypocrites. What happens when you take somebody like that and you try and give them knowledge? What happened to them with the knowledge that they had? They applied it in the wrong ways. They used that knowledge to keep people under their thumb. They used that knowledge to really squash the little guy. When you find Matthew 23, as Jesus says, you know, listen, uh, when they give you something to do, he says, that what, whatever it is that they tell you to do, do that. But don't follow their works, because they say and they do not do. And he would say, you know, they're, they're going to bind heavy burdens on people's shoulders and lay them on them people, but they're not going to move them with one of their smallest fingers. Here's somebody who is so full of themselves, so puffed up with pride, that if you gave them a knowledge and some kind of position of authority, what are they going to do? Well, as Roger said, they're going to abuse that. They're going to use that in wrong ways to really push somebody down. That's never happened religiously, has it? (laughs) That's never happened here, you know, uh, or uh, in, in this world that we're living in. Yes, sir. Doug says it's important to remember that what they did was they elevated the commandments of men or the traditions of men to the place of and sometimes beyond the commandment of God. And that's exactly what we find here in Matthew 15. When you find somebody that's going to take man's word and is going to apply that word as much as or if not more than what God has said, you're in a recipe for, again, somebody that's going to be very, very oppressive and somebody that's not going to apply God's word in a right way. It's a difference between I'm only going to speak what God says and I'm, I'm only going to speak what God says whenever it's convenient for me and then I'm going to tell people whatever it is I want to hear or whatever best suits me. It becomes really a will-worship, a self-worship. You know, that's why God, uh, Jesus says, you honor me with your uh, mouths or you draw near me with your mouths. You honor me with your lips, but your far, heart is far from me. And teaching uh, doctrines of uh, the commandments of men. When you look at... Who Jesus chose? He chose fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John, again, maybe three others. What is it about fishermen, do you suppose? This might be a good uh, Wednesday night devotional sometime. What is it about fishermen, do you suppose, that were attractive qualities of Jesus? Patience. Patience. (laughs) Not afraid to get your hands dirty. Are both of those qualities that are needed in somebody that's going to preach and teach the gospel? Patience, not being afraid to get your hands dirty. Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city. Did that stop him from preaching the gospel? Paul was chained in Rome to a prisoner day and night for, what, two years? Did that stop him from preaching and teaching the gospel? John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Did that stop him from preaching and teaching the gospel? What else? What else about fishermen? What's that? Bravery, going out there, pushing out into the deep. Okay, good. What else? They catch fish. They they catch fish. Yes. That's exactly right. They understand the law of catching. I drop that net down, I drop that fishing pole down, what do I expect? I'm going to catch something. If I don't drop that pole down, if I don't drop that net down, what do I expect? Not going to catch. And as Jesus talked to Peter and said, Don't be afraid, from now on you're going to catch men, he said that on the heels of a great miracle where Peter was trying to pull in an entire net that was breaking full of fish, where it was that the night before he and his uh, friends had fished all night and hadn't caught anything at all. Jesus proves his potential by breaking our nets and filling our boats. What else? What's another quality of fishermen? This is great. I'm making mental notes and coming soon to a sermon near you, right? What? They knew how to persevere. You know, we may be going through a dry spell right now, but we're not going to give up. We're going to keep on going. It goes back to what Roger said about patience as well. Exactly. What else? Not afraid to listen to advice. <laughs> not afraid to listen to advice. I know that there's no fishermen in here that are not that haven't got it all figured out, right? Exactly what lures to use, exactly what uh, spots or holes to go to, and and uh, <laughs> you know, understanding that we don't have it all figured out. Um, when you get to Galatians chapter two where Peter begins to play the hypocrite and only associate with those Jewish Christians. Paul comes along, what does he have to do? He has to rebuke Peter, doesn't he? In fact, he was uh, had to rebuke him, it seemed like, in a public venue, just to tell him, listen, you know, Christ has made us all one. We have no right to only associate with these type of Christians versus the others that uh, we may not have any kind of ethnic background with. You know, there's great qualities about these fishermen and about fishermen in general that Jesus saw and realized, again, it's not who they were, it was what they had the potential to become. He chose a tax collector. What qualities, what abilities does Matthew have, do you suppose, that Jesus saw and found attractive? (laughs) It's not worthy repeating. What? Knew how to handle money. Okay? Responsibility. Again, there was no indication that Matthew was crooked. You know, uh, if you have an honest tax collector, well, okay, great. Um, Zacchaeus. After Zacchaeus came and uh, and uh, sat down with Jesus and had a meal, Zacchaeus said, listen, if I've taken anything from anybody, I'm going to restore that. I'm going to make restitution for that. Doesn't seem like Matthew had anything like that that he needed to change or repent. of. What else? There, absolutely. And is that an admirable quality? When you're able to look and see how a particular profession or how an individual or how a group of individuals is perceived and realize, okay, I'm going to try and faithfully uphold Christ. And somebody comes to me and says, what was your former occupation before you became an apostle? Well, I was a tax collector. And I recognize the reputation tax collectors have. And I recognize who I was before, but let me tell you about the dynamic change that Jesus Christ made in me. There's a difference in wanting to try and talk to somebody and talking down to them and trying to share the gospel. There's a difference between understanding that these people, if I tell them who I was or who I am um, or what my profession was, that they may begin to look down on me just in general because of um, the association of that profession versus trying to faithfully uphold who you are now in integrity based upon who Jesus is. You know, does Christ made a difference in your life to the point where people can see beyond your profession? You know, I know we've got a lawyer here, at least one within the uh, the congregation. When you've got somebody that looks at a lawyer and says, "Oh, they're all crooked and they're all just uh, you know as, as corrupt as they possibly can be," but you find somebody that identifies first and foremost as a Christian, it's going to make a difference in how it is that uh, that um, that person's going to look at you. When you get a zealot. Again, religious extremists, they're not wanting the Romans to be uh, over them. They want their national independence. They want, their, um, they want to be a, their own nation as the Jews. What qualities, what, uh, what uh, things would you find admirable about that? Or what, uh, what seeds of greatness, I guess we can call, in sharing the gospel? Commitment. Absolute commitment. You know, these people that are so dedicated to jihad that they would walk into an open market square wearing a uh, vest strapped with explosives and blow themselves up. I wonder what kind of Christian those people would make. If they're that committed to that false religion, what it would be like to have somebody like that who is committed to doing good like Jesus did, as opposed to going and killing people. Commitment. What else? They were. They were responsible for Jerusalem being destroyed by Titus. That's exactly right. What qualities are good about that? Not about getting Jerusalem destroyed, but you understand what I'm asking. I hope. All right. Maybe a zeal for what they believe is right. Is that important? Having a zeal uh, and a commitment for what they know to be true or what they believe to be true. Absolutely. What about nationalism? What about nationalism? We are so committed to the kingdom of the Jews, to the nation of Israel, that we're willing to go and commit political assassination against those people that we don't feel have the right to be over us as rulers. Well, does Christ have a kingdom? Does Christ have a nation? The answer is yes. The nation's not America. Please don't be misunderstood. But the nation is the church. So when you find somebody who's committed and devoted to that nation and you put him in the kingdom of Christ, here's a person who is going to steadfastly all the way to the death defend and to uphold the ideals of that nation. You know, there's very attractive qualities for a zealot. Yes, sir. They were willing to act on their beliefs. That's exactly right. And you put somebody like that under the instruction of Jesus. Even though we recognize the difficult incongruencies of a person who is devoted to a lifestyle like that, And Christianity. But when you add love into the mix, and when you add the spirit of Christ into the mix, you've got the potential for somebody who, again, as we've read a little while ago, can turn the world upside down. They were uneducated. They were untrained men. Yes, George. Now that I'm looking at this, the way you put it: the tax collector and the zealot, One's collector for Rome. So, I mean, that would be sort of a terrible situation. Right. <laughs> That's an important point to make, uh, George. George said you, you look and you see the tax collector who once worked for Rome and you have the zealot who uh, was wanting to throw off the Roman oppression. Do you suppose Matthew and, uh, and Simon got along very well? I'm not associated with you. You're the enemy. I'm not associated with you. You're the one that wants to kill me all the time. And here's two men who are brought together in the same, again, kind of ragtag bunch of disciples, and Jesus using, as they look to Jesus, doesn't really, really read that Simon and Levi were always getting into trouble or always getting into squalls or uh, skirmishes. You don't necessarily read that they were at each other's throats all the time. You know, what's the difference that made? It had to be Jesus. It had to be Christ and his influence and them looking at him rather than looking at each other. That's where we get sometimes. We get so busy comparing ourselves and saying, well, I'm not going to associate with that brother. He, did, he didn't smile at me on Sunday morning or she didn't say hello to me. Or, you know, We get upset at people over just things that are really, by and large, not important. The things that you know hurt our feelings and the things that get under our skin, we let those things get under our skin because we're not faithfully looking at Jesus. And we're not letting him shape our attitude and our actions with regard to others, the way we treat others, but also with the way we treat the world. They were uneducated. They were untrained men. They were absolute different personalities. It put the apostles down on a personality index and uh, uh, leadership qualities, and there's not much there. There's really not much there. But as we've been mentioning all the way through, there is great potential listed with these men. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Mark's favorite word, and one of his favorite words, is the next word that you read. They immediately left their nets and followed him. What does that say about these men? They already knew Jesus, or they knew of him. And what else? They put their faith into action. They They were willing. They were understanding of the commitment that Christ had put before them. You follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to change your life from the inside out. And even though it was that Peter, whenever he was here on this earth, when Peter was uh, under the direction of Jesus as he was in that training period, often put his foot in his mouth. And often it was that he said things that were just completely wrong. And there was several times that Jesus had to say, Peter, get behind me, for you're not setting your mind on the things that uh, are, are heavenly. You're setting your mind here on things on the earth. As Jesus had to tell Peter that and had to train his tongue to stop before it starts, Whose words do we have recorded there in Acts chapter 2? The very first sermon, gospel sermon on Pentecost. It's Peter. As you follow Peter and the very first converts of the Gentiles, whose words do you find there in Acts chapter 10? It's Peter. He had the rough stuff of leadership, but under Christ he was able to refine it and make him what he ought to be. Questions or comments about that? I don't know that we have time to talk about how he chose them. That's there on uh, on your sheet. We mentioned what the training was like. These apostles, they showed repeated lack of depth and spiritual understanding. Time and time again, you're going to find them looking at Jesus. Uh, Luke 9, you know, James and John uh, going into a Samaritan village and being rejected. And they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from above and consume this village like Elijah did? Jesus looking at them kind kind of, you don't know what spirit you're of. After he was resurrected, Lord, is this the time that you're going to establish a kingdom for Israel? They were still kind of looking for the earthly kingdom, it seems like, in Acts chapter 1. and Jesus said, I want you to go in Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. So they had to wake him up in the back of the boat as he was exhausted after the day's activities. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus said, peace be still, O you of little faith. There's an understanding that these men didn't have much understanding in spiritual death. They got proud often. There were arguments that they had on the roads and um, sitting there at the table with Jesus after he had said, one of you is going to betray me. Well, who is it? Who do you suppose it's going to be? Well, it can't be me, you know, because I'm Peter. and You know, I'm, I'm, I'm his favorite, to be honest. You're the favorite. You can't be the favorite because I'm the favorite. Remember when he told me that that, uh, blessed are you? You remember that? And there they are sitting right there in the midst of their teacher who is grieved almost to death. And they're getting an argument about who is the greatest. There's great challenges there. Their commitment was often lacking. Mark 14, verse 50. Their faith was often weak, as we just mentioned from Matthew chapter 8. But as you look at these men and you see who they were and who Jesus chose them to be, they were the ones that after the cross were the ones to faithfully uphold and carry the cross so that the world could know who Jesus is and faithfully share the gospel all throughout creation. Other questions, comments? I didn't hear the bell, but, uh, and I don't see any children that are hanging around. But All right, we'll finish up there and uh, we'll have our worship begin in just a few moments. Thank you so much for being here today, and God bless you.